Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Monday, July the 12th. I'm Tom Tilley, joined by Annika Smethurst. Hey, Annika. Hey, Tom, and I have to check in. As someone living in Sydney, how are you? Oh, it's been pretty heavy the last few days. Um, When the restrictions tightened on Friday, I think the whole city was feeling it, and it was the first day of that extra police presence in southwest Sydney, so that brought a certain energy and tension, and, and people really started to... I guess, accept the fact that we're going to be in this situation for for weeks, maybe longer, the way things are going. Yeah, it was when she, uh, Gladys Berejiklian, said they're aiming for zero, zero, and those numbers keep going up that I thought, oh, this is reminiscent of what we saw last year. So hope everyone in Sydney, including yourself, is doing okay. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, later in the briefing, we're going to tell the heartbreaking story of an Australian father and grandfather. Being a grandparent is possibly... Uh, one of the last great loves of your life. I've been robbed of that opportunity to witness the birth of my grandchildren, to see their first words, their first steps. I desperately want my grandchildren back home. Sounds like that could be a COVID story, but it's not. It's actually a story of an ISIS bride. That was Kamal Debussy, and his daughter ended up in Syria. And while the media's moved on from that crisis, his daughter and three grandchildren are stuck in a Syrian camp still. They're still there right now. A father and a grandfather's plea, that story, in just a moment on The Briefing. First, let's get into the big news of the day, starting with the Sydney COVID situation. The number of new COVID cases in New South Wales is expected to hit triple digits today as the Sydney outbreak continues to grow. I'm anticipating the numbers in New South Wales will be greater than 100 tomorrow, and I'll be shocked if it's less than 100 So that was Gladys Berejikli and the Premier speaking yesterday. Uh, Yesterday, the number was 77 new cases and southwest Sydney is still the main area of concern with around two thirds of new cases coming from that part of Sydney. The Premier says daily COVID numbers are still not going in the right direction and has warned Sydney families to be prepared for homeschooling to extend beyond this week. Yeah, when you look at the curve, it's looking somewhat similar to the second wave in Melbourne. So that is very concerning because that led to a 112-day lockdown. Uh, New South Wales strengthened rules on masks and shopping over the weekend, but the Australian Medical Association President, Dr Omar Korshid, told the ABC tougher measures are still needed. You have to change something. Uh, and at the moment, probably the only lever left is really to uh, force the closure of, of, of all uh, retail and other businesses that aren't absolutely essential. The New South Wales Premier and health leaders will be up at 11am this morning to announce the number of new cases. And look, this does have real world effects for a lot of people. So there is talk the federal government is working on a financial rescue package for New South Wales businesses and families. The PM and Treasurer have held meetings with uh, their counterparts in New South Wales yesterday. So hopefully some good news there. Yeah, and the NRL aren't mucking around either. They're moving 12 New South Wales teams to southeast Queensland by Wednesday and looks like they might be there for the rest of the season. They've also moved the State of Origin Game 3 from Newcastle to Queensland. Queensland as well. So big changes there. Um, Annika, it seems uh, in hindsight that the New South Wales government should have locked down earlier, as a lot of people were saying. And, you know, we're seeing that's basically because of the Delta variant being more transmissible. Yeah, that and the low number of vaccines, I guess. You can see Gladys Berejiklian just didn't want to do it. She wanted to avoid that. And I think a lot of people in Sydney did too. It's Mm. terrible to be in lockdown. But being in Melbourne during that recent three-week lockdown, there was so much concern about this variant actually just jumping into people's faces. That's the sort of description they used, which um, what they mean is, you know, you don't have to be in the same room for very long. It can be a passing 
sort of conversation with somebody outdoors and it, it seems to spread so much quicker than what we were seeing last year. So yes, in hindsight, it seems like short, sharp lockdown might have got on top of this a little bit quicker, but hopefully now those restrictions are in place, it will start to see those numbers drop eventually, Tom. Mm. And the federal government's rolling out its new uh, vaccination ad campaign. A COVID-19 vaccine is your best defence. Now's the time to arm yourself. So the ads released yesterday feature images of people with Band-Aids on their arms after being vaccinated and will be rolled out in different languages from today. I wasn't a big fan of that one, Annika. I don't, I don't think arms and, and Band-Aids is the, the right image. I think that actually turns people off because it makes them think about needles. Yeah, you need to think about the incentive. I've seen some of those great ones coming out from overseas, from Singapore. There's catchy songs. And uh, also the French one is really sort of, I guess, engaging and tells you what you get back at the end of this, not just perhaps the sore arm. Look, they did say there will be new ads when there's more vaccines. So maybe it's an indication that they don't want to encourage too many people to go out and try and get it because it's just not the stock yet. So they're saying this is just phase one of the ad campaign. But yeah, it really didn't um, make me want to rush out and get it either, Tom. Yeah, maybe they're trying to um, slow people down from getting the vaccine. That's the point of, you know, putting out a really shit ad like this because they don't have the supply. If I was doing it, do you remember the VB ad where there was just a bunch of people all joining together, walking along the path and someone would come out from, you know, a different part of society and they all walk to this pub at the end of the road and it's huge and you get to the end of the pub and everyone's there. You've got Alan Border and all these famous faces. That's what I reckon it should be like. It's, it's all about joining the team helping everyone out. Yeah, I think Famous Faces is interesting. It's what they've done in the UK. They've got Sir Elton John, David Attenborough, and I think it's a really good way to get people to know it's safe when people you like and admire in the community are out there getting it too. And there's another ad coming out on social media, which is um, strikes a very different tone to what we've just been discussing. It's a seemingly fairly young woman. She looks like she's in her 30s in a hospital bed, struggling and moaning with COVID. <laughs> What do you make of that one? Yeah, this one worked a little bit more for me. It's pretty awful, actually. It sort of reminds me of TAC ads or something where we get an emotive response, especially to young people, to go out and change their behaviour. It's meant to be in New South Wales, but it will be seen more widely because it's obviously on social media. I think this is, sadly, the path we may have to go down. It's good for reinforcing the message about adhering to the lockdown measures, but the thing is this woman appeared under 40, which means she couldn't get a vaccine, which is a, a massive problem. And so the ad, in a sense, highlights the failure of the vaccine rollout. I suspect that's because then we have, again, a clash of state and federal governments. Look, the new ad campaigns do come at a bit of a serious time for Sydney, though. They did record their first death uh, over the weekend. A woman in her 90s who was a close contact of another case tested positive on Friday and died at Liverpool Hospital in Sydney southwest on Saturday. And the federal government's uh, confirmed that there are no more Australian troops in Afghanistan. Uh, the last six ADF personnel did leave last month. That marks a very significant contribution over two decades, 41 lives lost, 39,000 troops who have served their country with great distinction. Defence Minister Peter Dutton speaking on Sky News there. The ABC reported at the beginning of this month no Aussie troops were left in the country, but the government hasn't given any details until now. Yeah, so they've released uh, pictures showing the six soldiers boarding a plane and flying out of the country on June 18, 
without any ceremony or fanfare. And this withdrawal comes three months ahead of when uh, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison said the last troops would be leaving in time for September 11. And there are concerns the Taliban forces continue to overrun parts of the country. British billionaire Richard Branson has gone into space, nine days ahead of the flight planned by his rival Jeff Bezos. Yeah, Branson took the flight on a rocket plane owned by his company, Virgin Galactic, uh, with five other crew members and spent an hour flying up past the edge of space, almost 90 k's above the surface of the Earth. As flagged there, Branson's flight comes ahead of the Amazon founder's scheduled launch on July 20, and the fellow billionaire congratulated Virgin on their success. As did Elon Musk. And there's a huge vibe in Wembley Stadium uh, and on the streets of London as we record this episode. England's playing Italy in the final of the European Football Championship. England has never reached the Euros, but this would be their first win since the 1966 World Cup if they can pull it off. There were some pretty dramatic scenes outside Wembley, though. A lot of pushing, people trying to get into the stadium, but inside everybody was on their best behaviour. Yeah, massive weekend for sport in London. Novak Djokovic has just won Wimbledon overnight. He now equals um, Federer and Nadal with 20 Grand Slams. So this is a really interesting point in men's tennis. And of course, there was the tear-jerking victory of Ash Barty on Saturday night, Australian time. Annika, did even you shed a tear? I did. I love tennis, I must admit. And I wasn't going to stay up, but... Oh, it was just too much. And I kept wanting to go to bed, but she kept looking like she was going to win. So it was an incredible night and Australia should be so proud of it. She's just pure joy and humility. And um, that just really showed in the way that she, she handled herself during and after the game. And there was also Dylan Olcott's Wimbledon win in the quad singles, which was an amazing effort for him. Now, if he wins Tokyo and the US Open, it could be a gold slam for him, which would be off the charts amazing kind of the story we all needed right now as some of us in Australia (laughs) um, head into darker times and watching sport is a great way to pass the time in lockdown. Uh, Annika, we'll catch you tomorrow. Uh, Jan's about to jump back in to bring you this really fascinating interview with Kamal Dabusi. Hey Jan, can you remember about 15 years ago you and I both starting out as young journalists I can. 2005, I think. I was like interning somewhere, getting people coffee mainly, but loving it. (laughs) Yeah, a few casual shifts at the ABC to get me started. Um, Obviously, we both would have learned a lot since then, but one thing that kind of stands out to me at the moment, especially in this kind of pandemic that we're dealing with, is how the, the media cycle moves on from crisis to crisis. If you think back to those times, it was about the Cronulla riot. And like all the fallout from that and the questions around mm. national identity and the race relations. The Arab Spring was huge for a while as well, wasn't it? For just years, you'd just see it in, on the TV every single day. And recently it was all about Donald Trump and the sort of political civil war in America. Yeah. And then remember what came before that? ISIS. Remember that? Like popping up in 2014 and mm. just taking huge swathes of territory in Syria and northern Iraq. Yet another Iraqi base has fallen to ISIS control. They're reportedly closing in on Baghdad. We will degrade and ultimately destroy ISIL. A terror attack inspired by Islamic State. It's not a state, it's a death cult. From ISIS, another shocking video of another apparent atrocity. Refugees running to escape the ruthless ISIS militants. Yeah, five long bloody years 
right? Tens of thousands of deaths, dozens of ISIS-inspired terror attacks around the world. Now, ISIS was eventually defeated in 2019. And while it feels like the world has moved on to the next crisis, of course, we're in the middle of a pandemic now, there is still a group of around 15 Australian women and around 40 of their children who are still living that very hellish reality. They're living in a dusty camp in Syria. And one of them is an Australian woman called Mariam Debussy. She's just 30 years old. She's twice widowed and she's there with three of her children. They're seven, five and two. They're in a camp called Al Raj. Now, her father, Kamal, has been fighting to bring her and her children back to Australia. He's been fighting for years and he's written this book, sort of piecing this whole story together. It's called A Father's Plea. Kamal, thanks for speaking to us on the briefing. Take us back to your daughter Miriam's wedding in 2011. Well, Miriam had always wanted family. Miriam loved to be with family. So her wedding day for her was uh, sort of the start of of a new chapter and uh, she wanted to have that connection, that uh, that stability, that love, that, uh, that, that people around her all the time. So uh, on her wedding day, I was very happy for her that she was achieving what she had really wanted most of her life, all of her life. Um, the contrast now, of course, that she is languishing in a Kurdish-run uh, refugee detention centre with her three children, not able to see anyone of her parents, of her extended family, and those children are being robbed of an experience of their childhood, that that innocence is being lost to those uh, those three small grandchildren of mine. So when she went to the Middle East, what did she tell you about the reasons she was going? Well, they had left on a holiday um, and I, I had joined them on the first leg of that holiday and uh, and uh, we had gone to, to Malaysia, Dubai. They then uh, went on by themselves to Lebanon and then surprisingly to Turkey, they were supposed to be going to Greece. They were on an adventure as far as I know and as far as she knew, it was just a... Um, an adventure before the children or before her eldest child got too old and at school and, and into that routine. She was in Turkey and they'd settled there for a couple of months. To the information that I've since got, I, I, I had a knock at the door by the Australian government telling me that they thought my daughter was in Syria and she'd been coerced. And we were later to find out that actually her husband had played a trick on her, duped her to the border, and at the end of, of a gunpoint, um, uh, forced her across the border. So she didn't go willingly. She was she was forced across. So talk us through what happened when she was forced across the Syrian border. What what then happened to your daughter? Uh, well, after she'd crossed, it was, it was panic. Um, she ended up bundled into a car. She was then taken from house to house, eventually where she settled with another women's groups. And uh, her husband went off to, uh, to do some basic training with IS and... Um, then was killed very, very early on in the process. He was killed when she was pregnant with her second child a month before he was born. Soon after that, after she gave birth, she tried to organise an escape. She was caught, jailed, and um, given the choice of either remaining in jail without her children or she was given the option to be released on condition she marries uh, uh, another IS fighter and allow the children to remain with her. So, of course... um, she took the option of keeping the kids with her and um, she was forced into a second marriage. After he was killed, she again was forced into a third marriage. Oh, um, in the third instance, it was uh, towards the end, before the fall of Beruz. She managed actually to escape from that and, and surrendered herself to the Kurds 
as was the advice that she'd been given through me by the Australian government to, to if she can get out to surrender to the Kurds, that would be a way home for her. And she remains uh, trapped two and a half years after surrendering to the Kurds, despite the advice that that was the thing that she should do. So tell us where your daughter is now and what sort of conditions she's living in with her three children. She was moved to Al Raj refugee camp you know, around Father's Day 2020. There are 20 tents surrounded by barbed wire. They're controlled, their movements as to when they can move in and out. So the food is rationed, the water is rationed. They're in tents, concrete floors. Um, there's no standing medical facilities in the centre. They're currently in the northern summer, so they are dealing with 50-degree heat. And, and in the Kurdish administration that has them under their control are limited in resources. They're doing what they can. Uh, it's, it's not the Kurds' fault, and the Kurds shouldn't be having to babysit Australian or Western uh, citizens in their in their land. They should be returned to their countries of origin. So when she was in the other camp, Al Hole, you actually managed to go and see her face-to-face in 2019. I imagine you just wanted to grab her and bring her home with the mm. kids right then. In 2019, I managed to, to get to Syria, managed to visit them. I met my two youngest grandchildren for the first time. And, and in reality, I met the, the third, you know, the oldest one, though I'd, I'd met her before. She's, of course, five years. She'd grown up a lot and didn't recognize me. So I, I reacquainted with my grandchildren for the first time. The goodbye was heart-wrenching. Um, you know, I, I've kept a lot of that private to myself, but it was absolutely heart-wrenching to have to leave her there and... All I could tell her was, you know, I have to go in order to try to get you home. It was a, uh, a really, really gut-wrenching goodbye. So what's happened since? Why haven't we been able to get them out? The Australian government needs to request that they be, uh, that they be brought back. Um, so the Kurds are holding them or for the sole purpose that they be repatriated back home. They've been moved from Al-Hol to Al-Raj camp, A, because um, it's better protection for those that are, are not seen as, as, as a threat. So it's, it offers them better protection. They've been moved but 10 kilometres to the border and the United States and the Kurdish authorities and numerous NGOs have offered assistance to the Australian government to get them to the border because the government says it won't put any Australians at risk. Well, they need not put any Australians at risk to, to get them to safety. What is required from the government is an email to the Kurdish authorities in Syria and an email to the Kurdish authorities in Iraq. They would be delivered and handed over. The government just refuses to take the action for reasons unknown to us. I received, for your information, an independent NGO report last night of an Australian child that has such bad dental pain, she's unable to even feed herself or nourish herself. And and the word they use was the Australian government should be ashamed of itself. So some people have the view that these women are ISIS brides and, and in some cases they absolutely are and that they did the wrong thing and that they pose a threat and that's why they're not being brought home to Australia. I imagine that that might be the justification for the government going slow on this. What would you say to people who hold that view? The government of the day have said some women were actually duped and forced across. They recognise that. They said some women went voluntarily. Um, None of the women have any concerns regarding combat. So you're punishing a group of people for the sake of actions of maybe two or three women that might be there. But more importantly, the women have all offered to work with law enforcement uh, agencies here. They've all offered to be on control orders by consent. The local families have all offered to cooperate and work with all the state authorities and with police. 
they are on the table for the government. The government have not responded with anything that they require. And yet they continue to talk about the women might be causing a danger. Mm. I'm sure a country that is well-developed, well-sophisticated with mm. all the resources available can very easily cater for this group of women. And, and we shouldn't be collectively punishing the children for those concerns. Yeah. I mean, that argument makes a lot of sense to me. Why can't we bring them home? And yes, you know, if they need to be charged and tried in court to determine what they did or, or didn't do and how they should be treated and, and how, if there is a risk, our community should be protected, but also look after the well-being of those children who are without doubt innocent. So where to from here, Kamal? Have you given up hope on the Australian government? Are you pursuing other alternatives to get your, your daughter and, and the grandchildren home? Our call has always been that these women should be treated like any other Australian and, and go through the due process that's available to them. The Australian government, you know, if there are concerns, should investigate, exonerate or prosecute. We have an arsenal of laws and protections available that are there specifically for this purpose. That's the reason we have supervision orders. That's the reason that we have these controlled orders available for us. We want to work with the Australian government. We want to cooperate. We don't want to flout the system. We don't want to work around the system. So we believe that the best option here is for the government to step in and, and meet its moral duty towards those children and women. Our continued offers of cooperation is actually testament to the fact that we are wanting to work within the due process that's afforded. Kamal, just before we let you go, what would it mean to you as a father and a grandfather to have your daughter back here in the same country as you and to be able to see your grandchildren again? Being a grandparent is possibly uh, one of the last great loves of your life. I've been robbed of that opportunity to witness the birth of my grandchildren, to see their first words, their first steps. I desperately want my grandchildren back home so I can give them and help give them a future um, get them in a place where they don't have to be afraid of bombs going off in the morning, where they can go to school and look at their future, where they can contribute back to society. I, I want my family back. I truly believe that if we treat them with the right compassion and treatment, that they'll be great assets for this country as well. That was Kamal Debussy. He's the father of a woman named Miriam who is still stuck in Syria with her three children. He's written a book. It's called A Father's Plea and it is out now. Oh, it's just such a sad story. And to hear him talking about the great love of having grandchildren and not being able to look after these kids. And uh, he said there that he's still working with the Australian government, still, still trusting them after all this time that there'll be a resolution here. So if we hear anything major in that space, any major developments that might lead to getting them out we'll let you know about it tomorrow on the briefing is botox toxic listener